0: Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Broadcasted live. Hey! Hey. Hey. Who wants to have some fun?
1: There are balls coming from all over the place. Left field, center field, right field. See, this, this is the kind of thing, quite honestly, right now, that makes you want to see the Chicago Cubs team lose.
0: Now, are you just saying you want to have fun, or do you really want to have
1: fun? It'll be fun. Will the next person that sees anybody
0: throw anything onto this field, point them out, or get them out of here? You don't live in Cleveland get in Cincinnati!
1: You talking to me? You talking to me? That is the farthest thing in the universe
0: from the truth.
1: Hello everyone live, it's the Dan Scott Show. And right there is your host, Dan Scott. And
2: hi once again everybody, welcome to uh, another hour of whatever this is. We know this, we try to have fun, whether we are... uh, Intelligent enough to pull it off or not is another story sometimes, but we are here. Good to have you with us, and uh, thank you for continuing to tune in and support the program slash podcast. However you're listening to us, we do greatly appreciate it. I am Dan Scott. Tom Van Hoy will be with us in just a moment. Dave Glenn a little bit later on as we uh, get set to uh, tackle the next hour and talk about a myriad of subjects throughout the world of sports, both uh, locally, regionally, and Across the country, NFL playoffs kicked off with a very entertaining weekend, the super wildcard weekend. And, uh, of course, we have the college football playoff championship game tonight between Alabama and Ohio State, so I'm uh, sure we'll get into that a little bit. And then when Dave Glenn joins us, not only will we take a look at the ACC, but also try to get into a little bit the NCAA continuing to drag its feet on a couple of pretty significant topics uh, tabling again, a vote on the name image likeness, uh, proposal legislation, and also on the one-time transfer rule. Uh, so we'll get into that with Dave, see what he thinks about that when we uh, talk to him in the second half of our get together today. I need to remind you that the podcast version of this is presented by our friends at Todaro Pizza in, uh, downtown Greenville, the West end of downtown Greenville, just down the street, from Floor Field at the West End, where the Greenville Drive play. Uh, Todaropizza.com is the website, T-O-D-A-R-O-Pizza.com. You'll find the menu, the operating hours there. I can tell you that the food is phenomenal, but the people are even better. Uh, John and his folks have just been phenomenal in how they've negotiated all of this COVID-19 mess and and providing you with with a, a safe, friendly, clean environment to eat in, whether it's indoors or outdoors, weather permitting. They've got you covered, and as I said, man, the pizza is just off the charts. The Clemson location on Sloan Street is open right now only for pickup and delivery, uh, but you can find out all that again at tadaropizza.com. The other thing I always remind you of is we'd love to hear from you. We want you to uh, email us if you have any thoughts about the show, the Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. If you're checking us out via podcast, whatever uh, platform you are using, you can just go to the comments section and drop us a line there, and we would love to interact with you. All right, let's uh, take our first break. We will come back and get things rolling. This is uh, The Dan Scott Show. It's episode 22 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters, and Tom Van Hoy joins us on the other side. We'll get things rolling in just a moment. We are just getting cranked up on this Monday afternoon, Drive Time, WZLA in Abbeville, covering Greenwood as well on the air, and of course, it's episode 22 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. For those of you who are getting it podcast style, I'm Dan Scott. Tom Van Hoy is here, as he always is, and Thomas, good to see you again. How are you, sir? Uh,
0: I'm good. I'm good, Dan. You mentioned Drive Time, and I know you started in small not Americans, so did I. And I think during drive time, there might have been, I don't know, 15, 20 people. <laughs> uh, you, know, I, you do what you, you have to do, right?
2: Yeah, I have, uh, you and I have talked about this before, but I started my radio career, for lack of a better term, uh, at my hometown radio station in Williamson, West Virginia. And uh, we had a combo. We had a 50,000-watt FM, but it was fully automated. And uh, Tom, I'm sure you remember what automation machines looked like back <laughs> yes. in, 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 the, uh, in the early and mid-1980s. Uh, there was four racks, four huge racks. Each one had a reel-to-reel on it and, and cart machines and, and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, that was fully automated. 50,000-watt flamethrower. I was on, uh, as far as live on the air, the 1,000-watt uh, AM station. Which at nighttime, you know, you people Four might blocks. be able to listen to you around the corner. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was a yep. it was a great training ground, and and I have told this story before. I was uh, about two weeks into my uh, my job there. I just started, and uh, I guess we had a meeting or something because I started off the six to midnight guy. Remember in those days, the station no, station yeah, signed yeah. off. We played the national anthem, the last yes. thing. Before the station signed off, <laughs> yes, it, yes, it had a it had authority to go twenty four hours, but our management decided we would just mm-hmm. go from six a.m. to midnight. Anyway, so I'm in there for a meeting, and uh, the the mid the midday guy, and I'll never forget his name, Joe Miller. We were talking, and he was asking me why I was doing this and all this stuff, and he said the, these famous words I've never forgotten. He said, "Be careful." If this business gets in your blood, you'll never get it out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and boy was
0: he right. But you know what, Dan? And and you were the same way as I as I was, loving every minute of it. You know?
2: Yeah, for the most part. There, there have been yeah. some frustrating moments, and there, there have been some moments that I've questioned my sanity for getting oh, yeah, yeah. getting into this business. <laughs> and, and and to be honest with you, there there have been some times that I've tried to walk away from it, but it's like the was it the third Godfather movie? I keep trying to walk away, and they keep pulling me back in. Bah, yeah. 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 So yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, how we got off on that, I don't know. But uh, no. we're in drive time. We're, 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 second week of being moved from 4.30 from to 5.30 to 5.00 to 6.00 p.m. for our over-the-air audience in, in the Abbeville-Greenwood area, thanks to The Godfather for for there keeping us on. And uh, it's episode 22 of the All Den podcast. So, you know, you and I, we had gotten into a pretty good groove when it came to broadcasting basketball games. You know, Furman had played all 11 games on its schedule. One caveat to that, they were they were supposed to play Richmond, and that game got canceled because Richmond had COVID issues. But they found the game with the college of Charleston. So technically speaking, every day there was a game scheduled, for the first eleven games the Paladins played, we got a chance to broadcast. And now, if we get to broadcast on Wednesday at the Citadel, which right now everything is a go, it'll be the first game for Furman, and thus the first basketball broadcast in uh, what about eleven days, something like that. Yeah, if, since, if my math mm-hmm, is is since, correct.
0: Yeah, since January the the second, and you know it, it, we've always talked about it as the season progressed is you really do take it one game one day at a time because you know the cancellation uh, of uh, the VMI game came relatively late and you know there's one story uh, and and I'm sure there are lots of them around the country that um, I think was a team from Chicago was playing uh, in in New York and they're out there warming up uh, 45 minutes before the game and you know where's the other team well it turned out that they had covet issues as well so one team had flown all the way across the country from chicago to new york and, and had that game canceled fortunately we haven't been able to do that yet but it literally literally is up until you tip it off and get the game going uh you know you never know if you're going to get get to play and i think in in the southern conference there have been five teams that have been affected at one point or another by COVID. And Citadel who did uh, uh, play they hadn't played since uh, late December they had their first three southern conference games uh, postponed because of they had some issues and another teams that they were scheduled had had some issues as well and I mean they picked up a really good win against uh, Chattanooga so uh, you, you just never know yeah and you have routines you go through coaches players everybody else broadcasters I mean, for us, if you want to know anything about Western Carolina, EMI, or Citadel, just ask us. We we may be doing it into the wind, maybe, but, you know, you've got to make sure that you're ready to go prepared, not only as a, as a team, but as a broadcaster. So uh, just the fact that you can get games in, the fact that you can play, just appreciate it.
2: One of the things that I like to do, uh, given our place in the broadcasting world, is kind of give people from time to time a little bit of a glimpse inside what actually goes on in the real world of broadcasting and, and not talking about what the Jim Nance's and Bob Costas's of the world are doing, but what the, the, the people on the ground at our level are dealing with. And it's been very interesting as uh, I think most people know at Furman, we signed a, a new two-year deal with ESPN Upstate here in the Greenville area Uh, and Spartanburg area to be our flagship station. And and knowing that those quote-unquote two years were all going to be played within a span of uh, a little more than one calendar year, Uh, about about 14 or 15 months because of the the truncated start to this particular season with football being moved to the spring and then hopefully a full regular season uh, next year for football and basketball. But uh, it, it has been a, a, a true partnership uh, in, in the midst of the unknown, Tom. Uh, Mark Hendricks over at uh, ESPN Upstate, the program director there, uh, Lonzo, who is kind of the head of their uh, production and, and their uh, schedules, their, their producers and all of those type things, and, and even the talk show hosts that we work with, Rob Brown and, and Mark mm-hmm. Ryan. <laughs> uh, it, it has been a, a, an interesting introduction for Furman and ESPN Upstate into this relationship with one another because everything is fluid. I mean, normally you look at a schedule. This is the time the games are starting. These are the days that the games are on. We know exactly when everything's going to happen. And I always talk about the broadcast world. A lot of times all you have to do is be. You have to be at the team hotel, be on the team bus, be at the arena, be, be, be at a certain time. All of that has gone out the window And I am just so incredibly thankful and impressed at the way the folks at ESPN Upstate are handling this because, I mean, we are throwing things at them and and they're throwing things back at us. Uh, Things literally can change two or three times a day and they're handling it like professionals. And sometimes I wonder if at the upper level, if that could happen.
0: Well, that's true, Dan. And, and, you know, and if, if you, let's just take uh, Rob and Mark, if, if we happen to interrupt one of their shows, I mean, that that's, if you haven't done before what those guys do and what you do and, and those uh, down in Abbeville and your, in your area down there is you spend an inordinate amount of time preparing for what you want to do and lining things up and produce it and things like that. And then you got to kind of change it on the fly. And, you know, and in many cases, like uh, Rob has stepped in and produced and things like that. You're asked to do a lot of different things. And I always think back to what, what was the Dabo Sweeney said that he's got, he's prepared and he knows what his routine is, what, 13 months Thir- in advance, 13 you know, months so ahead, yeah. Yeah. So, that uh, and, and we've always kind of jokingly said, just get us to the arena. And if the, uh, we can plug in and hook up, it doesn't matter if we're in the Raptors or we're out in the parking lot or where we are just is, is it probably wouldn't affect our performance i don't know but uh you know just get us get us there and we'll get we'll at least get the, the date time score and things like that back to the people
2: that's what we try to do anyway and you know <coughs> the same thing holds true uh for uh, the folks uh who host us on on wzla in abbeville you know, benji greason aka the godfather who who mm. owns the station <coughs> and, and the hard work they put in they've had the same issues Dealing with the recently completed high school football season, and and, mm-hmm. and you know all the way up to the the uh, class two a state championship game being pushed back, uh, what was it two weeks, uh, or, oh, yeah, or or at yeah, least one right. week, uh, like the day before it was supposed to be played, it got pushed back because of, of covid issues, things they're having to deal with, and and they are going to broadcast the very first season of Erskine football which was supposed to be in the fall, and now is a shortened eight-game season this spring. So they're having to deal with all of these things as well. Not that the uh, upper levels aren't having to deal with similar things, but when you're dealing with the NFL, when you're dealing with college sports at, at the um, at the Power Five level to a certain degree, even Major League Baseball we saw in the spring, there's still going to be a certain, I don't want to say comfort level, but a, a, a certain bit of certainty that while it may not be to the same degree that it had been, they still have some kind of, of idea that every week in the NFL, for instance, every week they're going to broadcast their game, they're going to play their game as long as the protocols are followed. And the NFL got all 276 of its regular mm-hmm. season games in and got off to a great start this weekend with the super uh, wild card weekend in the playoffs. At this level, you don't have that level of certainty, man. And, and to, to watch professionals who at, at our level, Tom, will never get the kind of credit due to them that the, the Bob Costas's and the Jim Nances and those guys of the world get, to watch people at our level who work behind the scenes to get things done, it, it's just been incredible.
0: Yeah, it's a, it is amazing. And, you know, the bottom line is we want to be able to bring the broadcast to, to the fans of whomever team it, it may be. And, and, and really, they don't care and they shouldn't care uh, about what's going on. We just need to be it, – it, it it took me a little while to figure that out when I was a younger broadcast. No, you're right. But so let me ask you this, though. <clears throat> so Mike Tirico does the game from his home, and we've seen a lot of that. You and I had to do the one Alabama game from, from Furman's football uh, uh, complex. So he does the in, uh, game on NBC from home. Tony Romo did the uh, CBS game from home as well. And then the question that was asked is if they can do that, why can't uh, Kevin Stepanski of, of Cleveland coach from home? Which I thought was kind of an interesting question.
2: I think because it would be considered an advantage for a coach Sitting at home and having access to everything that a television broadcast would bring them, (laughs) with with you know replays and and all of those things, I got to think that that's probably the reason. In other words, you're you're not down on the field having to make decisions in real time. Yeah, you've got eyes in the sky who are looking at videos, but you have to make decisions very quickly. And I I would imagine that part of the reason is is there's just not supposed to be that kind of communication and it would be looked at as an advantage a coach would actually have more tools at his disposal yeah. if he had uh, all of that technology as opposed to the technology they have while you're standing on the sidelines as it's
0: happening that that'd be yeah, my guess probably but it it's uh <laughs> pretty amazing uh, with, with given that scenario and how it all played out that uh, your coach wasn't there and, and he <laughs> played pretty well in Cleveland Browns did. Yeah, didn't yeah, <laughs> they
2: did. Unfortunately, I hate to admit it, but they did. Did you watch any of yeah. of the uh, the the broadcast uh with with Jim Nance and, and Tony Romo? For those who don't uh, know, Ro- Romo was home following yeah. COVID protocol, so he had to call the game from home. And uh, they had some some uh, pretty significant uh timing issues. And what I mean by timing is stepping on one another and trying to decide who was going to speak and who wasn't going to speak. And there were a lot of the, go ahead, Tony, or go ahead, Jim, as as they tried to talk over one another. Um, obviously, they are NBC or CBS's number one team for a reason. They are very, very good. And, and Tony Romo is excellent as, as an analyst. But they had some issues simply because they weren't sitting there in the booth yeah. beside one another, and being able to, to, to play off one another like they normally do.
0: Yeah, some of it's body language when you and I do games or anybody else that works together. It's you look at one another, and you might not, or you might do, you know, we need to break, take, you know, things like that. But, yeah, that's the one thing, and, and I noticed it really early, and that's uh, not in th- those broadcasts, but when we first started getting those broadcasts with the with announcers not there, was that when you finish your when you finish your observation, then you go Dan, and that allows you a chance to know that you can step in there and and it, it's it's the one thing about it is it's it's difficult to do sometimes is to pause because you're waiting waiting and there was one the other day where they tried to bring in three they had. The play by play guy was some place, the color guy was another place, and then they were promoting in the, uh, the game that was following and it had another guy in a third place. Three of them. <laughs> it just and understandably, it, it didn't go very well because you never knew when somebody was finished speaking.
2: All right, we are uh, live here. Uh, on uh, WZLA and Abbey, almost live, I guess I should say technically, with the Dan Scott Show. And it's episode 22 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Let's move on to a couple of things before we take a break and bring Dave Glenn in. Uh, number one being the championship game tonight for the college football playoff mm-hmm. uh, between Alabama and Ohio State. Ohio State obviously sent a pretty significant message in their win last week over Clemson. Question is, can they deliver a similar message Against Alabama tonight, or is Alabama too good? Like most people seem to think they are.
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, which Ohio State are you going to get? The one that played in uh, played Indiana, played in the uh, the championship game, and and uh, really wasn't all that impressive to a certain extent. Again, those games were early in the year, and they only played uh, six total games before they played uh, before they played Clemson. I mean. Uh, just feels as good as it gets against Clemson. He had what six touchdown passes and only six incompletions, and and was was really good. What six hundred plus uh, uh, total yards uh, in that game? I, I think a lot of it. They're obviously very good, but uh, you you wonder how much uh, of that was fueled by the fact that. Everybody around the country was was talking about did they even deserve to be there because they, they were put into the Big Ten championship game. Dabo Sweeney picked him number 11. I You know, I mean, I understood his reasoning for doing that and his bulletin board material uh, fuel this day and age. So I kind of wonder which team is going to show up. you got an Alabama team as good as, you know, we thought LSU with Joe Burrell last year was about as good as it gets offensively. And then uh, Mac Jones and company and, and just going down the list of first-team All-Americans, and you know, Devontae Smith, they may get Jalen Waddle back, you know, Najee Harris going to the offensive line. Only two times this year did they not score more than 40 points uh, in a game, and that was the, the one game against Notre Dame. Uh, it was a 31-14, and then it was uh, the game against Missouri earlier this year. So uh, you're going to have to be able to score now. Ohio State obviously was able to do that again against Clemson. Can they do it against Alabama? Uh, I don't know. It'd be uh, not a betting man, but uh, I, would, I would take Alabama in this one. I just think that I'm not quite sure which Ohio State team uh, is going to show up. Now, they're obviously very good. I think the, a lot of the conversation has to do with the, the back end of their secondary and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can talk about all you want. It's like the last, <clears throat> last night on the Cleveland-Pittsburgh uh, game. You know, and Chris Collingworth going, we had all these things set up about this, 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 and this, and all of a sudden, the first snap of the game is over the head into the end zone for a touchdown. There's an interception. It's fourteen and and then it's twenty eight nothing at the end of the first quarter, and a lot of that goes out the window. So I mean, there's a lot of talk leading up to it, but I think uh, Alabama's just so good that I, I think they'll win the ballgame. game.
2: Right, one final thing very quickly before we go to break about uh, about sixty seconds. minor league baseball uh, mm-hmm. apparently has decided. Uh, Or Major League Baseball has decided that the minor leagues are going to have kind of a staggered start. Triple A, if the report is correct, is going to go to spring training with Major League Baseball, same time frame, but double A down will not go to spring training until those camps have been vacated by the Triple A and Major League teams. So that's going to push double A down the starting time for this 2021 season. Uh, to late April or the beginning of May impacts us from a broadcast standpoint uh, a little bit, but at at least now we're starting to get what looks like a timeline for the return of minor league baseball.
0: Yeah, they didn't want everybody there all at once, and it's, it's a transitional year in terms of the the number of team, minor league teams, and and there's just a lot of moving parts there. So they're going to delay it about a a month. And then, uh, so that means they're still going to try to get the 142 games in that they they normally do at the minor league level. That means it'll push back to uh, the end of October, which means if you want to talk about the Greenville Drive, is that, uh, and and lots of other uh, minor league teams across the country, you do, you run into some high school football and and you run into college football. You run into uh, some of those situations where normally you're finished about September 2nd or 3rd when everything's getting going.
2: All right, let's take a break. We will come back. Dave Glenn is going to join us on the other side, and uh, we'll talk more about this, some uh, name, image, likeness stuff, and who knows what else we'll get into with uh, the ACC guru, who is David Glenn. We'll be back after this. Don't go away. Dan got show slash episode 22 of Grumpy Old Broadcasters continuing. We always record on a Monday morning to try to be as topical as we possibly can. Everything that transpired over the weekend, and uh, sometimes that's no excuse for what you end up hearing, but we do the best we can. <laughs> Tom Van Hoy is with us. Dave Glenn is here. I can't forget his theme music, I don't want to make our highly paid guest angry with me. He's the guy who started accsports.com low those many years ago. He uh, writes for The Athletic and the Athletic Carolina it's subsite. He's a college professor and probably 3 or 4 other things we don't even know about. David, how are you, sir?
1: I am doing great, Dan. Always good to talk with you and Tom every week good
2: to have you uh, on board as well let's let's uh, let's hop into a couple of things here and we're gonna spend most of our time on something that affects the ACC but but affects all of college sports to be sure but just uh, some thoughts on tonight's national championship game Alabama and Ohio State uh, do you have any any uh, thoughts on that
1: Yeah I'm excited about it I really think this could be one of those entertaining national championship games where some, college football playoff matchups have been blowouts uh, including you know what Alabama did to Notre Dame for example but I think these are two of the best teams in the country Justin Fields and Mac Jones are two of the most accomplished quarterbacks in the country both teams are well coached both teams have a lot of future NFL players I wouldn't bet against the Crimson Tide but I think the Buckeyes are one of a small handful of teams that at least has a chance to make it interesting especially if Justin Fields, the Buckeyes quarterback, can play as well as he did against that Clemson defense led by Brent Venables, who usually ties opponents into knots, but uh, certainly had a rough day against Ohio State last week.
2: This is two straight college football playoff appearances that Clemson's defense has been shredded. Now they were shredded by maybe the best offense in the history of college football a year ago with LSU, but shredded nonetheless and then shredded again last week against Ohio State, Uh, and and around here where we live, that that has caused a great deal of consternation. And talking about what does Brent Venables have to do to get that defense turned back around. Um, One of the things that will help that is James Skowski coming back for a sixth year uh, in the middle of that linebacker core. But what else do you see defensively that Brent Venables needs to do, Dave?
1: Well, I think it mostly comes down to rules and personnel. And in all of our time, heck, the three of us together, if you added them combined, probably have covered college sports for like over a century, right? And in the the time that we have followed this stuff, the rules have repeatedly been tweaked at really most, I guess, all levels of American football to favor the offense. And that's just the, the reality of the situation. The counterpunch to that, which Brent Venables and some others have done really well, is recruited at a really high level, especially up front. And I'd be willing to bet that if we all did a deep dive on Clemson's defense under Brent Venables or even in the history of the program, when they have a lot of difference makers, especially in the front four, D-backs tend to be less complicated to find than defensive tackles and defensive ends. When you add a Brian Brzee, and he's only going to get better, when you add a Miles Murphy and he's only going to get better, uh, you're continuing the talent pipeline that separates you from everybody else. You know, and beyond that, it's. Uh, I think Clemson's done a gr- great job of winning the mental aspect of playing defense, whether it's legally stealing signs, which has been a conversation among ACC coaches for a long time. If you don't, it, you know, it's kind of like you and I both love baseball, Dan. Uh, it, if you there are Houston Astros' illegal ways (laughs) of stealing signs, and then there are been around 100 years, you know, if you don't want me to know what the pitcher's going to throw, the catcher should do a better job of hiding and and complicating his signals. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's similar things in play in college football, and with you, you, you guys see the craziness that goes on on the sidelines. I think Brent Venables and his staff had, over time, done a good job of uh, understanding how the opponent was communicating, and I don't know all the details of how they did it, but giving their own defensive players a better idea of what they thought was coming in the moment, and going into that game, Ohio State game planned against that. Mm-hmm. Ohio State anticipated what other <coughs> institutions had said, and said, if they're going to beat us, they're going to beat us without having an idea of what our signals are, and who knows to what degree that was a factor, but it certainly looked like the Tigers had no idea what was coming next. And so it's it's always starts with talent. And you just have to keep finding those difference makers in the front seven. Uh, and, you know, relatively speaking, Clemson's defense is a success story. So whatever indigestion has happened in those two examples, in my opinion, they have been overwhelmed by the number of success stories under the Dabo-Sweeney-Brent Venables combo.
2: Tom?
0: So, Dave, when you look at um, – how things have progressed from an offensive standpoint. And I was going to say, just taking Alabama as, as an example, because it was not that long ago when uh, Nick Saban said, you know, is that the kind of football you really want to play, that right. type of thing? Well, they've embraced that, and they've got the best <laughs> players that they can do, and they're averaging 48 points per game. Uh, over the course of the year, just you've covered it. I mean, it's amazing how it, it just adjusts one way or another, and all of a sudden – we have the offensive explosion. Everybody used to make fun of the Big 12. Then you think in basketball with Coach K and how he now is uh, the one and done for four or five years, things like that, how, how it changed. I guess you do it because you want to give yourself the best opportunity to win the ball games.
1: Yeah, that's the bottom line. And depending on what the defense is doing, sometimes you're doing them a favor to run the ball up the middle. And, you know, we, we're kind of – I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but let's say when we were young people, I believe coaches and Americans and athletes, I think not as many challenged convention. In other words, there was a lot more, well, you do it this way because it was always done this way. And over time, I think some are still that way, but there are a lot more people willing to say, I don't care how it's always been done. I just don't care. I don't care if you're supposed to run the ball this many times. Mike Leach is a classic example of this. I don't care if somebody says, well, that's the way it is because that's the way it's always been. Guys like Mike Leach don't care at all how it's always been. And he's carved out a niche where in some games he's throwing the ball 90% of the time, which would have been considered sacrilegious for much of college football history, right? You can picture, uh, you know, Frank Howard and Woody Hayes and Bear Bryant turning over in their graves. But... When you see, and you put your finger on it, Tom, when you see the competitive advantage, well, if the hurry up offense tires out the defense, that's a competitive advantage. If the throw it all around makes defenses harder to lo- makes it harder for them to load up against the run, that's a competitive advantage. And then, you know, you have the, the, just the way referees enforce things sometimes benefits the offense as well. So you also have more quarterbacks being trained in these kinds of offenses at the high school level than what we saw for decades. So, uh, you know, it all kind of grows up in football, meaning, you know, grassroots and then through high school, through college, into the NFL. And these guys arriving on campus are infinitely more equipped – to run these high-tempo, high-octane offenses then, then whatever the best idea might have been in the 80s and 90s, uh, they're doing it in high school. So you're not, like, teaching them a new language when they get to college. And, you know, all that stuff pays off in a way that, you know, great offense nowadays might be beating great defense the way for decades we used to always say great defense always beats great offense.
2: You know, I think maybe everybody has a a decade that kind of is the definitive time period of their lives. And for me, it was the 1980s. I turned 13 in 1980, and I got married in 1989, okay? All right. And in in that decade, though, as you're talking, I'm just sitting here thinking college football was still, for the most part, a defense and and run-the-football type of mentality. And I'm thinking of coaches like Barry Switzer, at Oklahoma, Tom Osborne in Nebraska, Joe Paterno at Penn State. But the guy that captured my imagination was Lavelle Edwards at Mm -hmm. BYU. While everybody else is still doing the three yards in the cloud of dust or throwing it a little bit, Lavelle Edwards and BYU, man, they were throwing the ball all over the place in the 1980s, and it was so far against that convention that you're just talking about. You're talking about a guy, and, and Lavelle Edwards was not a young guy in right. the 1980s, and he put that kind of offense on the field at BYU at a smaller school level. You know Jerry Rice at Mississippi Valley State and and the run and shoot offense that that they did; those were things that went against convention, but those were the precursors, David, to what we're seeing now.
1: You're right, and it, backing up to what Tom said, it's been fascinating to see Nick Saban convert essentially because what a lot of coaches will tell you. Just as I was speaking earlier about the difficulty of finding difference makers on the defensive front, right? You know, Clemson is way, way up here, and at least I know their issues. But for the most part, they've been the trendsetter. Um, when you look at other front sevens, you know, North Carolina might have been the third best team in the ACC this year, and on their front four, they they just don't have or did not have nearly as many elite players. So they were brilliant offensively, but they ended up, what, eight and four because they were very inconsistent defensively. And that's not a coaching issue. That's a personnel issue. Similarly, Nick Saban was saying for years that he understood why BYU would have this experiment. Remember when the Houston Cougars had their run and Mm -hmm. shoot? And there are infinite examples, really. They were the exceptions back in the 80s and the 90s. What Saban would say, and I think he was right, was that offensive linemen also don't grow on trees. And at Alabama, you might have five future NFL offensive linemen, right? So that you can do the run-pass balance. Whereas, you know, in a 15-team ACC this year, Notre Dame had a really good offensive line. Virginia Tech had a really good offensive line. Clemson had a good offensive line. The other 12 did not. And you, you either stick to the run pass old school balance, basically ignoring your own personnel deficiencies, or at those other 12 schools, you say, we got to do it a little differently. And I think that's what's happened over the decades. We don't have their, God just doesn't make enough people who are huge <laughs> and smart and athletic. And usually when he makes those people, they're not really ready to be great offensive linemen at the college level until they're juniors and seniors, after they put on that weight, after they've built some chemistry. So to see even Nick Saban, one of, I don't know, a dozen coaches in America who still could stick more to the traditional run-pass balance, to see even he kind of turned that page. He still loves to run it, and he still has just an incredible offensive line. But – the fact that he's been willing to embrace you know, the other side uh, says as much as anything else about this evolution that we've been discussing.
2: Visiting with Dave Glenn, uh, the founder of accsports.com and now writes for theathletic.com. Let's uh, shift gears because I, I really wanted to spend uh, quite a bit of time and uh, most of probably what we have left on the uh, the topic that just won't go away uh, in the college sports ranks, and that is the name-image likeness legislation and the one-time transfer rule that's being considered. And apparently the NCAA has yet again, Dave, decided to table it and not vote on it. And it seems like the more they kick the can down the road, the more confusion it's going to cause because we have individual states who either already have their own legislation or are contemplating such legislation. Why is the NCAA dragging its feet on this?
1: The short answer is because the NCAA recently became concerned about how the American Department of Justice, our country's enforcer of the laws, how they view the model that the NCAA was expected to approve this week. There was one vote early this week. There was another vote later this week. And by the time we got together a week from now, there was supposed to be in place this new model for the future of college sports. The kicking of the can down the road came after an exchange of communication between Mark Emmert, the NCAA president, and his attorneys with certain members of the Department of Justice. Uh, and certain antitrust law experts who help run our federal government's law law and uh, law enforcement if you will um, when they got back feedback that suggested that the current view of the Department of Justice is that this new model they were about to embrace would still be filled with, problems, antitrust wise, that would leave them vulnerable to lawsuits saying, wow, you're you're trying to adopt this new model that gives more athletes more ability to access third party money. And And the NCAA's point of view is we're trying to do the right thing here. We're trying to modernize, but we would still be leaving ourselves vulnerable to all these lawsuits. That's not what the NCAA wants to hear. What the NCAA wants is something close to certainty where they turn the page and they open these third party money avenues for athletes, but they're where they're protected either by congressional legislation or some other way, they're protected from being told, Hey, your new model is also vulnerable to, to, to lawsuits. And when Mark Emmert got that feedback, he said, that's not the way we're going. And remember guys, complicating all this is that we have a new administration coming in at the presidential level. And that often makes the Department of Justice view certain types of things. Different people are appointed to run different departments, antitrust or otherwise. And not everybody has the exact same view of how antitrust law applies to college sports in this case. So if you have changing personnel, that's going to be changing legal opinions. You also have a Supreme Court case involving the college model that's set to be heard later this calendar year which just makes we have this collision where the NCAA is kicking the can down the road because they don't know what the Supreme Court is going to say. They just got upset by what the Department of Justice had to say. And as you said, Dan, there's, there's the, the, time, the timer is ticking right now. The stopwatch, you can hear it in the background. Because as you said, it's only a half a dozen or so states that have these laws um, that govern name image likeness. the NCAA doesn't want 50 different states playing by 50 different sets of rules. Can you imagine a Clemson athlete would have to be subject to South Carolina law, which allows this, this, and this, but a Florida state athlete would be under a different law in the state of Florida that allows different things in terms of the income you can take for your name image likeness. Nobody wants that. But what Whereas none of those state laws are in effect right now as we speak, some of them have clauses that kick in the law as early as this summer, meaning the next academic year for these universities. So if the NCAA and or Congress don't put into place this new model on a federal level, you know, everybody playing by the same rules, well, then the state-by-state laws will start kicking in this summer and that just sounds like a weird, again, nobody, no coaches, no athletic directors, the NCAA, Congress, nobody wants this to be a state-by-state state situation where what you're allowed to take as an athlete depends on which, which state you're, you're attending a university in. Um, obvi- there's a chance that this gets, gets uh, you know, on a fast track, but I don't think that's possible until the United States Congress and the Department of Justice give the NCAA some clarity on which models they will support, which models they will not support. And to say that Democrats and Republicans don't view these things in a similar way uh, would be an understatement, and that's just
0: one more factor complicating things. Man, Dave, that gives new meaning to the term headache. Yeah, no Hey, is there a peripheral story in all of this, though, that uh, we've seen all the opt-outs in, in, in bowls and particularly uh, for the, the best players of North Carolina. And, of course, Matt Brown, wants to see, he'd like to see it expanded as well. But um, if they do get that pass and they do sign some kind of contract that says we will get that amount of money and they can put a clause in there, that says you will play in a bowl game? I mean, yeah. is, is, is that anything that could – I mean, there's going to be all kinds of things that can happen, I believe. There,
1: there will be a, probably some unintended consequences. I think the NCAA is in such a defensive mode right now that I don't see them going down the road that you just described. It would be interesting to see, hey, we're opening the door in these new ways to, to treat you better as a student-athlete how about you meet us halfway or whatever and sign on the dotted line and say, you'll commit to this or that. I think the opting out is something that's not going to go away under any model. I think that even if you're allowed to take money during your college career, if you're say a running back and maybe your bowl is just another bowl, you know, not the college football playoff, but just some run of the mill bowl. Mm -hmm. I think even under a system where you were allowed to take certain third-party money over the course of your maybe three-year career i still think they'll have an incentive if they're told they're about to be a high enough draft pick i still think that running back at at a a position where so many guys are hurt and it's just a higher risk position on a football field i think they'll make the same decision under the the new model but but again i that's just my kind of educated guess um your guess is as good as mine to you know, how many dominoes fall in how many directions with all this?
2: Visiting with Dave Glenn as we do on uh, each show slash podcast when his schedule allows. Uh, let's shift very quickly here to uh, the world of uh, Atlantic Coast Conference basketball. It's very intriguing. David uh, had COVID not uh, stepped in and uh, caused Clemson some issues. Uh, North Carolina was going to try to have, to, have to try to break a losing streak in Chapel Hill to the Clemson Tigers for the first time in history, right? A losing streak of one.
1: That, that is why you are the professional broadcaster that you are, Dan Scott. That's very well said. Uh, it would be a heck of a matchup this year. There's no doubt about it. If any of us did our ACC power rankings, there is no logic that would put the North Carolina Tar Heels right now ahead of the Clemson Tigers, period. I mean, it's, it's Virginia Tech playing good basketball. It's Clemson playing good basketball. It's Louisville playing good basketball. And it's really Duke, Carolina, and Virginia still trying to figure things out. And I don't remember many times where we've had this dynamic in ACC basketball. But here's, here's one quick twist on it. It is both accurate to say that the ACC does not have a single top 15 in the country team right now in men's basketball which is unheard of for the Atlantic coast conference, but it is also accurate to say that there are enough good teams that there might be six in the top 25 and there might be nine, you know, projected into the NCAA tournament. So if you have nine teams in the NCAA tournament, you're actually one of the top leagues. Whereas if you have nobody in the top 15, nobody considers you a top league at all. So it's this interesting dichotomy I think the criticism of the ACC is valid in the sense that there just aren't as many elite players. There are not as many future NBA lottery picks. There's, there's just not a great team yet. But anyone thinking that this is just a pushover league is miscalculating. I'll give the Big Ten and the Big 12 credit. They are better leagues. After those two, I would argue that the ACC quickly goes – from that nobody in the top 15 league to the nine potential NCAA tournament teams really quickly. In other words, if there were a top 30 poll that might include seven ACC teams. And so it's top tier vacant next tier, pretty darn solid because Duke and Carolina and Virginia have a chance to get better. And I would argue that that top tier, Louisville, Virginia tech, Clemson, Florida state, um, Syracuse, I think they're all good basketball teams. So when you add it all up, you know, you get near nine and 10 NCAA tournament participants. There's nobody that can tell you that you had
0: a really bad year. I want to ask you, Dave, about more in depth, maybe a little bit on, on Virginia Tech and what <clears throat> Mike Young has been able to do there. But prior to that, and Dan and, and Dan and I go back when Mike Young was coaching at Wofford. And, and I always remember sitting on court side and see him walking by and eating popcorn. So apparently he got popcorn, Virginia Tech, and that's kind of turned into kind of a big deal there. I was wondering, in in all your years of covering uh, athletics in the ACC, do you know any coaches or anybody affiliated with teams, players that had superstitions?
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny. I think of, when I think of colorful personalities like that, one guy that almost, you know, I didn't overlap with, I talked to him more as a retired man, Lefty Drizel of Maryland. Mm -hmm. Was superstitious about the colorful jackets he wore, you know, back in the the 70s and 80s. He he was such a colorful character that, you know, if somebody brought popcorn down from the sidelines, he might just start gobbling it. Uh, You know, Bobby Kremens of Georgia Tech occasionally would do his weekly press conference from his bathtub, where nobody really knew. (laughs) Oh man. This is pre-Zoom and all that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And every once in a while, you hear, you know, water running or or bubbles popping in the background, <laughs> and it was turned turned out it was Kremen's chatting from uh, from his tub. Jim Valvano at NC State, obviously. So, I don't, I can't think of a lot of coaches who are superstitious. The majority of coaches I know are such intense competitors that they mm-hmm. roll their eyes at superstitions. <laughs> I have found more; it's more often college basketball players that will always wear, you know, that undergarment or those socks or these shoes or tie their shoes in a certain way, in a certain order, or, you know, touch it, you know, bop with a certain teammate right before the opening tap or touch the floor or those stories are all over the place. But uh, there's something about older competitive coaches where superstitions are less frequent and and just the younger wide-eyed athletes where they're all over the place.
2: Do you have any superstitions as a broadcaster?
1: I am not at all. I'm probably the least superstitious person that you know. I, I, um, I don't make fun of others who have them, to each his own, to each her own. I, I'm not, I, I do remember as a young ball player, just as a baseball player, um, I, I, w- I would do the, you know, th- there were, like probably a lot of us, I would mimic things that I remember, in my case, Philadelphia Phillies players or others around the league, You know, if Steve Carlton, left-handed future Hall of Fame pitcher, um, you know, he had some unusual facial tics, if you may remember. Mm -hmm. And I would be out there as a left-handed starting pitcher. I don't have those facial tics, but I would do them anyway. Like just to just to be, I mean, totally ridiculous. I don't even know if that fits as a superstition, but, you know, not stepping on the line. Uh, Whether you came in from either dugout, the the third baseline or the first baseline, that was one. I, I had superstitions over who caught me, which was actually a Steve Carlton thing. He had a designated catcher. And sometimes the best catcher on my team in the eyes of the manager was not the guy that I was the most comfortable throwing to. So I was I was like a high maintenance twelve year old I guess yeah. so asking for my own personal catcher but that to me those things that one at least was less superstitious and there were actual sort of practical reasons I would prefer this catcher over that rather than any kind of cosmic forces at work.
2: Well, we we, we got to wrap it up here, but I, I'll just say I, I think at that age it's it's not superstition. You used the right word. It's mimicry because I can remember playing little league baseball. And, and growing up a Cincinnati Reds fan, and every time Dave Concepcion would step into the batter's box, he would cross himself, and, and yeah, I started yeah. doing that, and my dad had to remind me, you're not Catholic, you know, so, so you know, <laughs> d- d- don't, don't do that because you're, you're, you're not Catholic. That, that's why he's, he's doing that. So, As a yeah.
1: guy raised Catholic in Philadelphia, I have a special appreciation for that story. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Tell everybody how they can keep up with what you're doing, Dave.
1: Yeah, on Twitter, at David Glenn Show, online, theathletic.com, the Athletic Carolina, and, of course, we hope you'll check out accsports.com as well. You guys are always a fun kickoff to my week. Great to be with you again. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. All right,
2: guys, we will talk to you again next time. It is uh, time for us to take a break, come back, and put a wrap on this edition of the show and the broadcast right after this. All right, welcome back. We've got just enough time really to say goodbye. We went a little long with uh, Dave Glenn, but, man, I-, I hope you folks really appreciate what he brings to the broadcast. My my philosophy in, in doing a talk show going all the way back to the, to the uh, old days at Clemson when I was doing it three hours a day is not to try to dazzle people with my verbal footwork. I, I wanted to bring on people who know a lot more about a subject than I do, And let them go. And that's what Dave Glenn brings to us every week when it's uh, about the ACC or just about college sports at large. We appreciate him, always appreciate Tom. Appreciate Todaro Pizza for sponsoring the Grumpy Old Broadcasters podcast. TodaroPizza.com, T O D A R O Pizza.com is the website to find out the operating hours, see the menu. I really invite you to go check out what John uh, and the Volks have there on Markley Street in Greenville and on Sloan Street in Clemson. They're open for takeout and delivery. That'll do it for this week. We'll be back again on WZLA in Abbeville next Monday at 5 o'clock, and uh, Episode 23 will drop next Monday afternoon of the Grumpy Old Broadcasters podcast. This has been Episode 22. And until next time, I'm Dan Scott saying God bless you and so long, everybody.